we are in Mark 9, 1 through 13. I unfortunately didn't grab the Black Bibles. I don't know what page that is on. 793 on the Black Bibles around the room if you have one. Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them high up on a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And as they were talking with Jesus, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I want to pray before we get into this. God, would you move me aside? Lord, would you speak to our hearts? God, would we understand your glorious magnificence this morning? God, would the weight of your glory be felt by the people in this room in a way that draws us into affection and obedience? Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated if you'd like. Probably one of the most impactful books that I've read in the last five to ten years was The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. If you've read it, you know. Uh, If you haven't, he goes off of this premise that out of all the attributes of God, the one that stands above them all is his holiness. In speaking on the topic, he, he says this, Scripture does not say that God is love, 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 or that he is wrath, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. Sproul goes on to give possibly one of the best treatments I've ever seen of Isaiah 6. Um, so much so that it, 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 uh, it has literally changed me. It has changed the way that I look at God. It has changed the way that I look at Scripture. There are 11 chapters in his book, but his chapter entitled Holy, Holy, Holy has impacted me the most. And I want to read to you from Isaiah 6 this morning as we get into this text because we're, we are going to deal with the glory of Christ. It says that, this in chapter 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook with the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah receives this vision of the throne room of God. He sees God in all of his glory. It is awe-inspiring. It is bigger than life. And in seeing the glory of God and his holiness, he utters these words. It says, I am lost. I, I think the New King James has a better rendering of this passage. It says, I am undone. Everything that Isaiah thought held him together, everything that he thought he was in the contrast of God's holiness, he says, I'm unraveling. There's nothing that I have. This experience of God's glory, mercy, and grace results in Isaiah's loving obedience towards God, where God asks, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. Sproul's treatment of Isaiah 6 has made this one of the most impactful and important sections of Scripture in my life. It's purely about who God is, not the great uh, power that he has, not what he can do, not even what he's promised, but it is about a pure, glorified, and holy God. And as we approach the text this morning, we find that we are going to discuss who Jesus is. This is, this is a periscope of sorts where Mark is zooming out from the ministry of what Jesus has been doing, what Jesus does, and focuses almost solely on who Jesus is. Who is the character? What is the attributes of this Jesus? What is Jesus like? And as we approach the text this morning, we find ourselves staring directly into this Jesus. We stare directly into this glorious Christ. And this this text comes on the heels of of Peter's confession, of Jesus' rebuke of Peter, uh, of Jesus talking about how he must suffer and die. And and, uh, and, and even this rebuke of of Peter, as, as Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there is no doubt that those words are rattling not only through Peter's head, but also the other disciples. Peter's rebuke, this idea that Jesus must suffer and die, they, they're, they're thinking about this. They're struggling with this. And Jesus delivers a somewhat puzzling statement. In verse 1, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And theologians have, have debated and, and discussed the meaning of this text. It's, it's, a, it's a fun verse to start out with. It's, uh, we're, we're going from probably one of the most clear statements of Jesus' suffering and death to this, this almost innocuous statement that 
some are not going to die until they have seen the kingdom of God come in power. And so what is this event that Jesus is referring to? Some believe that it's pointing directly to the next section, the the transfiguration that we're about to get into. Uh, Some believe that it points to uh, maybe the resurrection, ascension, or even the day of Pentecost. Uh, Still others believe it's a prophetic statement about the fall of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, The plain reading of the text, though, I think would imply that some disciples would not die before they saw the kingdom of God come in power. But I think some would. I think, I think you have to get into that. So I have a hard time with any interpretation in which some of the disciples have not died before they see this event that Jesus is speaking of. And though we don't necessarily understand exactly this prophetic event, and though we can debate it and discuss it, at the end of this, Jesus encourages his disciples. They are the hearers of this prophecy. And this is what he says. I'm going to give you hope. Some of you will see the kingdom of God coming in power. And it will be worth it. After suffering, after sacrifice, some of you will see it. And as we wrestle with the meaning of the text, what exactly is Jesus saying here? What exactly is the the event that he's speaking about? On this side of the New Testament, we can launch past their understanding and cling to the promises that we have in Scripture. We can look towards a fully glorified Christ who has promised, I will build my church and the, 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 the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can look forward to the promise in Revelation 21.4 that says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Christian, while the exact understanding of the exact event might elude us a little bit, as we wrestle with the text or the uncertainty we can find absolute hope and confidence in Jesus, in our redemption, and in our future hope. And so Jesus gives this somewhat ominous, innocuous statement to his disciples. But when Mark picks up the next event, he gets incredibly specific. Verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Jesus brings with him his inner circle. Jesus has thousands of followers. We know this. They they showed up at both of the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Uh, We know there have been large, massive crowds before. He has thousands of followers. He has 12 disciples, 12 apostles. And then he has these three, Peter, James, and John. And it is these three he first calls to be disciples. It is these three that he leads up on this mountain for this moment. And it will be these three that he invites to prayer in the garden when he anguishes says, and he was transfigured before them. Transfigured isn't a word we use. 
I, I don't know when the last time you used it was, uh, but the last time I used it was directly in reference to the transfiguration. And that's probably the only time I've ever used it. We can, we can infer some meaning from root words, right? Trans meaning across or over. Uh, figure, talking about shape or form. So there's this idea that there is a, a changing, a crossing over, a form or shape. Uh, but the beauty is actually that the, the New Testament is written primarily in Greek, uh, all of the gospel writers wrote the New Testament in Greek, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and the word that is used here is, is pretty cool. It's metamorpho. Uh, that is the Greek word. And we actually transliterate that into metamorphosis. So if you've ever struggled with the idea of what does he mean when he says transfigured, uh, going back, I think, to the Greek is actually more helpful here than even our English word, metamorphosis. So, so we're talking about a, a changing of of shape and form, a changing of, um, of what, he's, what they're looking at. This gives us a better idea of what the disciples have just seen and experienced. They have experienced a metamorphosis of Jesus, who up until this point has exhibited all loneliness and humbleness. At his birth, he was born in a stable, whom Isaiah 53, 2 prophesies about him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Whom the apostle Paul writes, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This Jesus who is ordinary, unattractive, common, a servant, transformed, and in that moment the disciples got a glimpse of the fully glorified Christ. From humility to glory, from common to exalted, from ordinary to majestic. And Jesus did this out of pure grace. The disciples were not owed this revelation if anything, they were so dense, it would seem that they wouldn't even know what to do with the revelation. But Jesus did this solely out of grace. If you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, grace is simply this. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. We can take that further to say God is giving you what you can't deserve. You, you cannot earn it. There is nothing you can do to earn his grace. And here it is that we find Peter, James, and John receiving the pure grace of God, receiving this revelation of a glorified Christ, to which John would write in his introduction to his gospel account, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These three didn't know what to do with the revelation at the time that they saw it, but they would not forget it. Mark continues uh, in verse 3, uh, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. The other gospel accounts mention that in the transformation of his appearance, not only did his clothes change to this radiant white, but that his face glowed. Luke notes this in chapter 17, verse 2 of his gospel account, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This radiance and this glory is intended to point the reader back to Exodus, back to Moses, where Moses is on the mountain 
having this discussion with God. He comes down from Mount Sinai, and it says that his face is, is shining. It says in, in Exodus 20, uh, 34, 29, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. This experience with God causes Moses to reflect the glory of God. No one has an experience with the living God and leaves entirely unchanged. This is what we see in Scripture. Isaiah was undone. Nebuchadnezzar bowed. The rich young ruler went away sad. The hearts of the Pharisees were hardened, and Paul was instantly converted. While there are many reactions to experiencing a glorious Christ, apathy is not one of them. But here Christ is not reflecting glory. Christ is the source of glory. It shines from the source of God. We had read earlier in the account from Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees the Lord sitting in the throne room. John 12, 41 says this. And we discover here that Isaiah saw Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, the, the New Living Translation renders it this way. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. This same glorious God whom Isaiah was amazed by is the same Jesus which has just been seen by the disciples, but has now been revealed in that glimpse of glory. This is Jesus of whom Isaiah writes when he says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called out to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is Jesus. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is Jesus. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This was Jesus. This is Jesus of whom Isaiah proclaims that everything he thought that held him together was becoming undone. This is Jesus of whom Isaiah records these angels existed, covered their face with wings that they might not look upon his glory and covered their feet that they might not touch the holy floor on which he stood. This is Jesus who shook the foundations with his voice and this is Jesus in his abundant grace and glory that he shows this glimpse to three undeserving, mostly confused disciples. And to further confuse these disciples and possibly the readers, Mark notes, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Why Elijah and Moses? Jesus is glorified, transfigured before their eyes. What is the significance of Elijah and Moses showing up? I think the clearest connection might be that Elijah and Moses represent the prophets and the law. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. But as we contrast Elijah 
a, a great and amazing Old Testament prophet, which Scripture records that he was taken up and he didn't even taste death himself. But as we contrast Elijah, this prophet, we see Jesus, a better prophet. As we contrast Moses, a, a rescuer, a savior of sorts, who brought his people out of the bondage of Egypt, we see Jesus, a better Messiah, who's capable of rescuing his people from the bondage of sin, who's capable of changing their very nature. Luke, in his account, gives us slightly more detail and tells us in Luke 9 what they were speaking about and that Jesus was speaking about his death and about what he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem with Elijah and Moses. And here we go. In the midst of harrowing prophecies about the suffering and death Jesus must endure, and he's graced his disciples with his glory, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. If you're uh, somewhat unfamiliar with Peter, he often has more initiative and more drive and more impulse than he does tact or common sense. Uh, often we find Peter is the guy with no filter. He, he is the talk first, uh, jump in first guy. Uh, um, in other gospel accounts, we read that when Jesus walked on water, Peter was like, Jesus, I want to go walk on water and just jumps out of the boat and uh, jumps thinking first or jumps impulse first and then starts to think about the waves that are crashing around him and, and starts to sink and, and Jesus pulls him up. Uh, Peter is, is the first to go and try to rebuke the Son of God, to which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. Peter is incredibly impulsive, and, and here we read that he says, Rabbi, it is, it is good that we are here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah that will save his people from their sins. And to the glorified Christ, with the whitest clothes and a glowing face, he refers, reverts back to, hey, uh, hey, teacher, it's good to be here. No kidding. What a grace from God you've just experienced. What an amazing revelation you've just received. What a special moment that Jesus chose to share with these three. But what experiences with Christ do we downplay when we consider our own salvation? Does the weight of what Christ has done in our life affect us in any meaningful way? How do we react when we consider his glory and his holiness and our own fallenness? Do we react out of impulse like Peter or do we react based on the truth of the gospel? To further complicate things, Peter suggests they build an altar to Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And there's a portion in which we should be able to relate. Peter has experienced with Christians uh, and Christianese, man, we've got our own language sometimes. You know, we just, 
like not just biblical language, but we come up with our own words and our own phrases. But Christians uh, might talk about this idea of a mountaintop experience, right? And, and they might be talking about like that idea of Moses, maybe this idea of being up here with Christ, but the, this, this spiritual high that you might experience. And, and Peter's just experienced this. He's experienced the glowing face of Christ, seeing him in glory, seeing these clothes shine. White, white as snow. But as Christians, we, we have these experiences. Sometimes they might be retreats. They might be like a Christian camp you went to. They might be a conference. Um, they might just be an amazing time of, of musical worship. We've heard preaching that, that awakens our souls to God's goodness or musical worship that has evoked a deep affection towards God. Maybe you've been at a, a retreat or a camp where at the conclusion, everyone is crying. Um, most youth camps, by the way, that, that is how they end. Everyone is crying, even the guys. They might not admit it when they get back, but they cried. But it is these, quote, mountaintop experiences that we're so eager to live in. If only I could feel the way that I felt at the retreat. If only I could, I could harness some of that emotion that I felt at the conference. If only I, I could feel the worship like I did during that one worship service where I felt so connected to God. And we find ourselves like Peter, out of emotion, wanting to live in that moment forever. Let's build a tent there. Let's, let's reside there. Let's worship there. But then we have to come down from the mountain. Peter and the other 12 are about to face the harsh reality of a suffering Christ. The insight from Luke that tells us that, that it was his death that Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were talking about. And while the mountaintop experiences can be influential and even significant in our Christian life, they are not the common experience. In the popular Psalm 23, the psalmist writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Christian, you will experience mountaintops and valleys but the tip of the mountain will be bookended by the ascents and descents from that peak. Joy is found not in the pinnacle of the ascent, but in the everyday, ordinary trudge through the valley. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. It is difficult to fault Peter in his humanity for wanting to remain there with the glorified Christ, but not even with just the glorified Christ, with these great men of their faith, with Moses and Elijah. But what he and the other disciples didn't yet see and didn't yet understand was the suffering this glorified Christ would experience. They didn't understand that Jesus must suffer, die, be buried and resurrected and eventually ascend to the Father for their benefit. Peter did not yet see Christ suffering as the picture of grace and mercy. He did not have a category to place either this revelation into or the future suffering of Christ. The popular hymn, Come Thou Found, has this line. Here I raise my Ebenezer. This idea is taken from 1 Samuel 7, 12. 
And uh, Ebenezer is, is just a stone of remembrance of what God has done. We, we see this concept also in Joshua 4, where Israel crosses through the Jordan, and they are called to set up 12 memorial stones to remind them of the grace that God gave them in bringing them across. Christian, we are to remember the things that God has done, but we are to live and to find joy in the circumstances in which God has called us now. Mark continues this account in verse 7 where he says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As the disciples face the glory of Christ, and this cloud overshadows them, and God the Father calls down from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And they look around, there's no more Elijah, no more Moses. Jesus hasn't spoken yet to these three during this encounter. He's been transformed before them. He's, he's spoken to Elijah and Moses, but he hasn't spoken to the three. And yet God the Father doesn't say, look at him. He doesn't say, gaze upon his glory. He says, listen to him. Church, if our mountaintop experience leaves us emotional, but without a deep conviction and desire to study God's word and to listen to him, then we have been moved more by our emotions than God. The study of scripture is to be a lifelong pursuit. Not the pursuit of knowledge, but the pursuit to know the heart of God, to desire to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, and to know him as deeply and as completely as we can. How often do we appreciate Jesus but not obey Jesus? In what ways do we gaze at his glory but leave unmoved? And as God the Father speaks and the cloud overshadows, they are left with only Jesus. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. We are left with the better prophet and the better rescuer. As great as Moses and Elijah were, they fail to compare to this Jesus. And they have to come down the mountain. And as they were coming down, verse 9, as we're coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept that matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be, be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is probably the first time that Jesus has, has said, hey, tell no one what you've seen. He's charged them, you know, don't go out and spread this news. And somebody listened. Uh, what's more amazing is Peter is here. Peter's got a bit, bit of a mouth, and uh, he also obeys. 
This is a pivotal, pivotal moment for them. They are, they are struck with amazement. They went beyond watching Jesus do the supernatural. This was about Jesus being supernatural. And this caused pause and thought even in Peter. So they kept what they had seen to themselves, but they still don't understand what Jesus meant when he said that he'll rise from the dead. This is important because a physical bodily resurrection was the common belief of, of the Jews at that time. There, there was only one group that, that kind of denied this, and that was the Sadducees. They were a religious sect of Judaism who, who denied a bodily resurrection. But this means without a doubt, these are not Sadducees. Without a doubt, they had a belief and understanding that God's chosen people would experience a bodily, physical resurrection from the dead, reuniting soul and body once again. But Jesus' prophecy is distinctly different from their understanding of the resurrection. There is an expectation that all of God's chosen people will be raised at once. And here Jesus is saying that three days after his death, he alone will be the first to be raised from the dead. But if we back up slightly, they are actually still in denial of Jesus' death altogether. They don't understand why. But here's the thing. Jesus has spoken clearly, and Jesus has spoken plainly. But because they don't understand why, they struggle in unbelief. And so they suggest an alternative, and it sounds like this. You claim to be the Messiah. The Messiah will rescue his people. We know that Malachi says that Elijah will come first, so if you're the Messiah, where is Elijah to restore all things first? Their thought process and their logic sounds, sounds, uh, seems sound, but they're in denial of what Christ has plainly told them. Church, what plain teachings from Scripture do we struggle with because we don't understand them completely? but we feel like all our questions need to be answered first. To continue to quote R.C. Sproul this morning, huge fan, by the way, uh, when God says something, the argument is over. And I, I don't mean that to sound callous. So let me encourage you with this. Wrestle with Scripture. Christianity is not a blind religion. Christianity has, has stood the time of, of seekers and critics alike. God is not threatened by your questions. But as Jesus directs their questions back to the truth about himself, our questions need to direct our heart and our mind back to the truth about Jesus. Let us never separate the pursuit of truth from the source of truth, Christ himself. And this is where our text ends. Peter, James, and John have experienced the glory of Jesus they have seen his face, his clothing shine with radiance. They've heard the audible voice of God as the cloud overshadowed them. And Jesus has told them not to say anything to anyone. And God has said, listen to him. And though they don't yet understand, they obey. 
They're convinced that they can trust and fully obey the words of Christ in this. Church, in, your, in our disbelief and our pursuit of the truth and our questioning, are we still obedient to Jesus? I think we can take that question further and ask, are we even pursuing Jesus in the scriptures when we have questions or doubt? When we have questioning or we have doubts about our faith, do we go to scripture? Do we roll up our sleeves and do the intense work of study and wrestle to seek the truth? My prayer for you this morning would be that you see the glory of Christ in the scriptures, that you would behold his majesty and radiance, that it would bring you to a place where you are undone in yourself and fully dependent on his grace, and that truth would lead you into loving obedience. Let's pray. God, God, your glory is something that to some degree we can only imagine. The fullness of it, Lord, we, we don't understand this side of heaven. But God, we know what it looks like. We know what it looks like to see a, a perfect Christ full of glory empty himself into lowliness, empty himself into humility. Take the, the form of a servant to go to the cross to let the creation that he made, whom he was suffering for, spit upon him, beat him, crucify him, mock him, We know that he died, that he resurrected, and that he is now ascended, fully glorified, the Lord of hosts, the King of all. God, I thank you for this glimpse and mark of the glorified Christ. I thank you for knowing that you have grace on us not only when we are undeserving, God, but when we are not understanding. Lord, in our doubts and disbelief, God, would we never fail to obey you? God, would we never fail to seek you out? Would we never give up on the pursuit of your truth? God, would, would, would pursuing your truth result in a deep affection and worship of our hearts? Would it result in, in raised hands towards heaven, praising your name, submitting to your kingship, submitting to your lordship over our life? God, you are so good and so holy. We thank you for the grace that you've given us, undeserving. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.